Welcome to the Escape for Our Life radio broadcast. This is a presentation of the independent Tuesday Seventh-day Adventist Church, a revival of original Adventism and ancient Christianity. Our speaker is Brother Nairon Medina. This is Brother Medina for Tuesday Seventh-day Adventist speaking. And let us start with a word of prayer. Loving Father, may your Holy Spirit be with us as we enter into this discussion. Please help our listeners to understand clearly what is being said. These mercies we ask of you through Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, we are discussing, we are continuing our discussion from last week, how the death of Christ works to save us. How the death of Christ works to save us. We are continuing this discussion from last week. And we're doing it because we see it is necessary to show people how the death of someone more than 2,000 years ago can save people 2,000 years after from their evils or from their sins and their characters. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when we look at verse 3, this is what we are told. I quote, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. End of quote. So what we are being told here by the apostle is that Christ died for our sins. Now this for has been interpreted in different ways by other people. For has been used to mean in place of or instead of, that Christ died instead of us. As well, for has been used to mean that Christ died as a provision for us. Now we are showing that to say that Christ died instead of us is not the biblical intent and it is not the biblical teaching. When the Bible says Christ died for us, we identified last week that the Greek preposition there that is used is hooper and it means over. You get the, 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 the idea of a mother hen protecting its, 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 its uh, offspring by the wings covering over them. So you get the idea of over, protection, a kind of provisionary uh, uh, protection. This is why we identify that the word hupodia is used more to mean provision, protection, over, and not in place of or instead of. Now, if you want to understand the Greek word for instead of, it is the word anti. And there is no scripture that tells us that Christ died instead of us, or Christ died anti us, according to the Greek text. As we identified last week, there is one scripture that tells us that Christ gave his life a ransom for anti-many. And this we explain is life in place of what? In place of death. The Bible says, you who were dead in sins had quickened or given life. So in other words, the life of Christ, which is a commodity, is given in place of spiritual death. And this is what Christ was saying he came and gave to give his life to do. So we have absolutely no scripture, not one, showing that Christ died instead of us. Now some people will quote uh, Isaiah, where it says he was bruised for our iniquities. And they will say the word for there shows that he, was, he, he, he actually faced physical penalty instead of us. But I want them to understand that all the prepositions used in the word for in the Septuagint text in Isaiah is hooper. Not one of them is anti. So when it says he was bruised for our, for our transgressions, uh, he was uh, uh, flogged for our iniquities, etc. The word for there always means hooper in the Greek text, in the Septuagint, when it comes to Isaiah. 
So in other words, we have no, actually no scripture where we are being told that Christ died instead of us. Now, here is an example of a wrong idea of translating the for to mean in place of or instead of. I am quoting for you Paul Blanchard, Right with God, page 73. He tells us this, I quote, He, Jesus, must have died for the sins of others. Here he uses the word for. He goes on, taking their place. Did you see that? So he interprets the word for to mean taking their place. He continues, bearing the penalty and punishment for sin. End of quote. And on page 74 of that same book, he tells us, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was taking the place of guilty sinners, willingly bearing their punishment. End of quote. So the idea we have to have here is that someone is taking the place of a, another one in facing physical penalty. And it is the innocent taking the place of the guilty so that he dies instead of them. Now, there is something fundamentally wrong with teachings like this. In fact, there are various teachings in the scriptures that show when you believe these things, or you believe that idea of the death of Christ, you're going against certain principles that God stands for, principles of justice that God himself stands for. And you ask yourself the question, how can God stand for certain principles of justice and yet transgress it? If we look at Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, first of all, this is what we are told. It says here, He that justified the wicked and he that condemned the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord. End of quote. Did you see that? So if God is, is, is given the idea of justifying wicked people while he condemns the just Jesus, both, both of that idea of justice is an abomination to the Lord or to Yahweh. So in other words, if we are to look at the death of Christ, you must not look at it that way. Yes, Jesus is dying for us. It is the innocent dying for the guilty, but not instead of the guilty. Dying as a provision to save the guilty. This is what the Bible tells us. So the idea that justifying the wicked and condemning the just is, can, can never be sensible to God is wrong. And if we look a little lower down, in the same Proverbs chapter 17 to verse 26, we get even something more clearer. It tells us this, I quote, Also, to punish the just is not good, nor to strike princes for equity or for straightness. Notice this, to punish the just is not good. How then can we have Jesus Christ punishing the just? How can we have God punishing the just who is Jesus Christ? How can we have that? Yes, Jesus was just. Yes, Jesus was punished, but not instead of us. Because to put him being punished instead of us is to punish the just, and that is not good. Scriptures like this clearly shows that God's idea of justice will never allow him to sanction an idea of the death of Christ to save us the way these evangelicals and other religions are telling us. And if we look at Exodus chapter <clears throat> 23, and we look at verse 7, we get something else clear, another principle of the death of Christ. It tells us this, Keep far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous slay not, for I will not justify the wicked. End of quote. Yet these evangelicals have God slain the innocent and the righteous, who is Jesus, and justifying the wicked, who are all of us sinners. And yet God says he will not do that. And he tells us, keep far from a false matter. Something like this. So the idea we are presenting to you here, my dear people, it is incompatible 
with God's justice to present God as slain the innocent Jesus instead of guilty sinners. We say again, yes, Jesus died for us. But the four is not instead of. The four is not translated from the Greek word anti. It's translated from the Greek word hooper. And therefore, we must realize that Jesus died as a provision, as a protection for us. And in what way? We, are clearly, we clearly see, which is what we are aiming to present to you today, how his death protects us from death. How his death protects us from eternal destruction. But we are not looking at the death of Christ as Jesus Christ dying in our actual place as a, as, uh, in, instead of us. Now, this idea of Christ dying instead of us is what the, uh, the evangelicals call the penal substitutionary view of the death of Christ. However, there is something fundamentally wrong with this idea. Let me give you three different reasons why this idea is wrong. Reason number one, if Christ died for our sins instead of us, as they tell us, then those who died before the cross did not have a substitute because they died because of sins before someone paid for them. <clears throat> they either had no savior or were saved another way. This would mean that all men were not saved by Christ and he is thus not the only savior. End of quote. What does this show us? Evangelicals tells us that people were saved by uh, the death of animals, the blood of animals. God took the blood of animals in place of their death. That's ridiculous. We are not saved by no death of animals. No people before the cross were saved by the death of animals or God taking animal blood in place of Christ's blood. That's absolute nonsense. The very idea, the very idea of that teaching gives the impression that God is more interested in getting blood and then calling it forgiveness. You don't call that forgiveness. If a child does something wrong, you don't go and punish right? the innocent child, let the guilty go free, gratify your, your urge to punish by punishing the innocent child and then say, ah, I forgive you the guilty. That's not forgiveness because God still gets his satisfaction in punishment. But it is even worse because he punished the innocent. That teaching could never be right. And then what about all those who died before the cross? It would mean that they died because of their sins and they had nobody to pay their, at, at that time because Christ didn't come yet. We are using this to show you that teaching can never be true. Now, exa another example why that teaching is wrong. If Christ died instead of us for all our sins, then after his death on the cross, we must have to commit those sins, right, in the future for him to have had some sins to die for. In other words, if Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago and he died for my sins, then I must have to commit those sins in the future so that it would be in the past he died for my sins. What does that mean? It is inevitable that I must do my sins because he died for it in the past. Or, as I should say, died instead of me in the past. That's how foolish that teaching is. You see, all these rationalistic, uh, problems will rise up. All these philosophical problems will rise up if you hold that idea of the death of Christ. Now, <clears throat> let's look at our next point again why it can't be so. 
if Christ actually died as a penalty for all our actual sins instead of us, and all this was done before we of the future committed them, then we cannot do them, then we, ca then we, then when we do commit them later, when we do commit those sins later, we have no penalty, right, to pay for them, even though we do not repent, because someone else already paid for them way in the past. Let me help you to get that again. If Christ actually died as penalty for all my actual sins instead of me, and this was done, right, way in the past, before I in the future committed those sins, <clears throat> then when I do commit these sins in the future, like now so, I have no penalty to undergo for these sins. Why? I don't even have to repent. Why? Because Christ actually paid for it even before I repented, 2,000 years ago. So then repentance is not necessary. You see, this teaching itself does away with the need for repentance, my dear people. The teaching is so false it cannot be true. And there are many, many things wrong with this idea of the death of Jesus Christ. Yet we are constantly told that Christ died instead of us. This is a false teaching. <clears throat> However, we know that Christ did die for all our sins, but not instead of us. Right? Only as a provision over us, as a protection over us. So let's look at something here. The death of Christ has two aspects to it, my dear people. It is his suffrage for sins, and it is his gift of life. These two things. Let me repeat again. The death of Christ has two aspects to it. In other words, when you say the death of Christ, two things are meant. His suffrage unto death for sins, and his gift of life. Let's look first of all in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 18. What does it tell us? I quote, <clears throat> it says, For Christ also had once suffered for sins. The Greek word for there is peri. It means concerning. So Christ, for Christ also had once suffered concerning sins. Now here it comes. The just for the unjust. And the word for there is hooper. Right? Being put to death in the flesh. So here we are told he suffered for sins and he suffered unto death. Notice he suffered here. So the death of Christ here is identified as a suffrage. Again, for Christ had once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to, to, to God, being put to death in the flesh. So, so the death of Christ is a suffrage unto death, suffering for sins. Now again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, we have been told also, for even hereunto, were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. Hooper again, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. So the point here again, we have Christ suffering for us. And the word for there is Hooper again as a provision, as a protection. But notice again, the death of Christ is identified as suffrage. Now let's look and see that the death of Christ is also identified as the gift of life. And when we look at John... Uh, chapter 10, verse 11, and verse 15. Well, let's read from verse 10 first. John 10, 10 to 11, and then we will see <coughs> verse 15. It tells us this. The thief cometh not but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that he might have life, and have it more abundantly. 
here is Jesus announcing his purpose. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. That means he came to make life available to us. Then he tell, continually tells us, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The Greek word is hupadia, as a pro provision, as a protection, over. So here again, Christ gave his life for the sheep. So here we are seeing again that the death of Christ is to be identified as a gift of life here. And again in verse 15, this is what we are told. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for Hooper, the sheep. Again, the death of Christ is identified as the gift of life to save us. Yes, my dear people. If we go to Romans chapter 5, and we look at verse 10, we get the same idea again. I quote Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So here the death of his son, which reconciles us, is being saved by his life. Again here, the life of Christ itself is clearly identified as a gift there towards us. And again, the death of Christ is identified as the gift of life. Now let's just see how this works. We have two things. On the cross, his suffrage for our sins and the gift of life. Upon his mind, God places a general account of the sins of humanity upon the consciousness of Christ. He sees the horribleness of sins. He sees the evil of sins. He sees the wickedness of sins. And what happens to him? He goes through an excruciating mental suffrage for those sins because he, see how, he sees how wrong they are, how horrible they are, how terrible our sins are. He sees its separation from God. He sees it is against God. He sees the, it is against our own interests. He sees the horribleness and the suffering it brings to man. And that brings to his mind an excruciating experience. This is the suffrage he goes through on the cross for our sins. Now look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. We are looking at here the suffrage works this way. When, he, when we now behold this suffrage for Christ on the cross because of our sins, we see in this suffrage the horribleness of our sins. We see their evil. Now it goes here. As Christ had suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that had suffered in the flesh had ceased from sin. What is this telling us? Just as Christ suffered on the cross for us, we are to have that same kind of mind. In other words, we will not suffer the extent to which he suffered because it will kill us. But the most we can do is to get an appreciation of the suffrage of Christ on the cross by getting a small experience of what he was going through. In other words, we have to have that same kind of mind. So as Christ is suffering on the cross, we get that same kind of mind. And when we seize that suffrage, that horribleness of our sins, by looking at the suffrage of Christ on the cross, unto death, what happens? It's supposed to bring into us a genuine kind. It's supposed to evoke into us a genuine kind of repentance, my dear people. A kind of repentance that works a kind of suffrage for sin is supposed to be in our minds that works genuine repentance, a kind of repentance wherewith God can actually forgive us of our sins. Let's look at that in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and verse 11. We read, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. In other words, a repentance that you don't need to repent of. It continues, But the sorrow of the world wicked death. So you see people, they are, sorrying, they are sorry for the suffrage they are going through, but that is just working death. But we're talking about the godly sorrow that works repentance. 
and the repentance that you don't need to repent of. It goes on, verse 11. For behold, this selfsame thing, that you sowed after godly thought, with what carefulness it wrought in you, what cleaving to yourself, in other words, a kind of pleading in yourself, it, it wrought in you, it, it worked in you. Yea, what indignation that is for sin. Yea, what fear or awe, right? Yea, what vehement desire, that is, yearning for righteousness against evil. Yea, what zeal, that is, to do holiness. Yea, what revenge, that is, against evil. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So in other words, this is the kind of repentance, the suffrage that comes upon our mind works. Whenever you see the horribleness of Christ's death on the cross, it works in the mind as a, a sorrow for sin, a suffrage for sin. And this, as I just read, is a kind of suffrage and penitence it brings about. It brings about a suffrage and therefore a penitence where you're just against sin and you want to be holy. Then what do you do? You ask God to forgive you of your sins. And when you ask God to forgive you of your sins, you repent and you believe, what does he do? He gives you the Holy Spirit. He justifies you. In Galatians chapter 3, we look at verse 7 to verse 9 and then verse 14. This is what we are told. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now verse 14 tells us that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through the faith. So we receive the Holy Spirit through faith. When we repent and believe, we receive the Holy Spirit. And what is this Holy Spirit? In, uh, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 10, this is what we are told, I quote, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So when we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive the life of Christ. Yes, my dear people. So this would mean that when Christ died, we literally receive the life of the Holy Spirit as a gift. Remember what the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. So life is a gift, and God gives us this life to dwell in us. And this life is given to us when we repent and when we believe. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, we are told, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. The word quicken here means enliven or give life to. God gives life to our mortal bodies. That's not physical life because we have physical life already. That is, God gives spiritual life to our mortal bodies through his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So life is a gift from God, a commodity given from God. And remember what we are told in Romans chapter 8 and verse 6? It tells us, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And then Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 tells us, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now since the spiritual mind gives us life and peace, and when we are justified we have peace, it means we also have life. It means we are given the spiritual mind, which is life. So again, when God then therefore justifies you as you repent and believe, he gives you spiritual life or the spiritual mind. And this is what causes you to live holy. And then sanctification, or second sanctification as we call it, continues afterwards. But what do we see here? We see that the death of Christ 
on the cross can be symbolized in two, can, can be identified in two ways his suffrage unto death for our sins and his gift of life a commodity to make us different and what happens there this suffrage is the horribleness that christ went through in his mind when he said my god my god why had thou forsaken me that kind of suffrage clearly shows us the horribleness of sins when you and i see this and are conscious of this in our minds through the holy spirit showing us the meaning of the death of christ on the cross and we repent and believe the gospel god then gives us the life of christ by justifying us or giving us the holy spirit which is the spirit of life and life is love in faith experienced an experience of his love so god gives us this life that was made available for us through jesus christ and when he gives us this life this life dwells in us as an experience of love this is how the death of christ works to change us many years after so the death of christ has a moral influence upon us it is a moral influence death not a penal substitutionary death so through this you, you see this makes god himself be the one that forgive us so because if when we see the wrong of our sins or the horribleness of our sins and we repent and believe it is god himself to say okay i'm going to justify you i'm going to give you life i'm not going to hold these sins against you uh, um, i'm not going to hold the, the sins of the carnal mind against you anymore i'm going to remove your carnal mind it therefore depends upon god himself to forgive us so god actually is merciful in forgiving us there because we, we reap the benefit of the death of christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. Yes, my dear people, this in a, in a nutshell, as time would allow, is a brief idea of the death of Christ. It literally works to make us see the horribleness of sins. This is why when people do not see the evil of their evil, they cannot genuinely repent. If they cannot genuinely repent in such a way that God can forgive them, they cannot receive true forgiveness. God wants you to receive true forgiveness, but you must genuinely repent. For you to genuinely repent, you must see the horribleness of the death of Christ on the cross, understanding the true value of it through the Holy Spirit working upon your mind. And then you must, when you repent and believe, receive the life of Christ or an experience of love from God through the Spirit of truth. This is how God changes us, and this is how the death of Christ works to save us. Now, we will talk about that some other time again in the future. In the meanwhile, call us at 6250446, 6250446, and we will give you literature with more information to help you understand this even much more better. And in the meantime, may God bless you as you look at the death of Christ on the cross to gain benefits from it through Christ our Savior. We pray. Amen. And has said.